0: Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, coming to us and speaking to us, for desiring to dwell in our midst, for giving us your spirit, for giving us hope and a life that is abundant and amazing. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that we would be those who listen to you, that we would seek you and find you because we seek you with our whole hearts. And you are the one who helps us, Lord. You're the one who has done all things for us, and we praise and glorify you today. Thank you for being with us and for your wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Hosea chapter 11, if you'll turn there. One thing we see consistent with God throughout all Scripture is his love and his faithfulness towards his people. And those who would view God kind of as a, um, a Jekyll and Hyde vacillating between love and vengeance is really woefully skewed because his love is consistent throughout. The God who created Adam to live in a garden is the one who is preparing a place for sinners to dwell with him in heaven forever that we could be atoned for and forgiven. The, the God who destroyed the ancient world with a flood, he's the one in the book of Genesis, he's the one in the book of Revelation who will destroy the world with fire. So we see that he's consistent. He does not change and his love is for all people, for all time, if we'll respond to him. Um, His wrath is for a moment, his mercy is forever. I love what he says in Isaiah 54, verse 8. He says, With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Then in verse 10, For the mountains shall depart and the hills shall be removed. But my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord. Who has mercy on you? We have such a God who's a redeemer, who shows mercy on us. And he's given us that covenant that he's not going to renege on. He's not going to go back on it. That covenant of peace through Jesus, the Prince of Peace, our Savior. So this book, Hosea, it's a letter written or it's a prophetic uh, writing to the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, A warning of coming judgment for their sin. Hosea the prophet was directed by God to marry uh, Gomer, who was a prostitute. He married her, and she, during their marriage, was unfaithful to him, went back into prostitution, and he bought her back permanently. And this was a picture that God was saying, you know, my people, I drew them out of Egypt. I was faithful to keep my word to them, but they were unfaithful to me. But I pursued them and I've brought them back, I've redeemed them, and I want to dwell with them forever. He, he spoke kindly to them, he was merciful to them because he's faithful. There would be destruction because of their sin, there would be consequences for their rebellion, but God's heart was not to destroy, but to see them restored. So Hosea 11, verse one. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrifice to the Baals and burn incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. God called the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. He loved them as you love a firstborn child. He didn't drag them out. It says he called them out. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And sheep respond to the voice of the shepherd. There's some cool YouTube videos if you want to see how sheep respond to the shepherd. But um, the sheep are very much in their own little world, grazing. A few people are like, hey, sheep, or making a call, and the sheep just don't even pay attention. But as soon as the shepherd says something, they just their heads go up. And they will just start ambling over. And once one crosses the, the stream, they'll all just cross the stream and they come to the shepherd. There's no bit or bridle. There's no lasso like around the throat, dragging them to, hey, come here. All they have to do is speak. And that's enough guidance for the sheep to know where to go because they go right to the, the shepherd's side. So he says, I brought them out of Egypt. I led them by the hands I brought them through the wilderness into the promised land. But his love and his care for them, it was not returned in kind. They were unfaithful and went after idols. Verse 1, it's a surprising fulfillment in the life of Jesus. We see it referenced in Matthew 2.15. It says, and there was, that Jesus was there in Egypt until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt, I called my son.'" God called Israel out of Egypt and then Jesus went to Egypt for a period in his life and they referenced this verse to say this also applies to Christ and um, called out of Egypt to save sinners. You guys ever been involved in teaching a little one to walk or you've seen a baby that is just pretty unsteady on their feet and they use furniture to pull themselves up and uncoordinated. And walking really begins with trust. Trusting the person, trusting the thing that you're leaning on, trusting your legs to hold you. And then when the baby takes those first steps, it's usually to someone who is encouraging them and smiling and saying, hey, come on, come on, take those steps. And the kid, you see him like kind of I don't know about this, and takes that first step and falls. And then they encourage him. And then I've never seen, now it may have happened, but I've never seen those kind of videos where the kid turns around and walks the opposite way from where the person's like, come here, that first step. Now, what they do, though, is once they get strong on those legs, and you say, hey, come here, they go the opposite way, (laughs) right? Because they can run, and they they know that you may have them do something they don't want to do. So there's that willfulness, right? So God's like, I taught you how to walk. I, I drew you gently. I spoke encouraging things to you. I'm delighted in you, but you, you've left me. You've run away from me. And that smiling, rejoicing, exuberant parent to see their child take those steps, that's always God's demeanor towards his people. He's never this growling, angry, God towards people who return to him. Think about the prodigal son. When the prodigal son had wasted the inheritance that his father had given him. And a long way off, he saw his son coming and he ran out to him. And he didn't give him the silent treatment. He hugged him. He kissed him. He put shoes on his feet. He says, you're back as my son, not just a slave or a servant. I'm going to put the ring on your finger. We are going to celebrate your return because you were as dead, but now you're alive. And that's, that's the grace of God, that he would love us like that. God used another analogy with his people. Like a farmer who was gentle with his ox. He didn't drive them, but he drew them. He didn't stand behind just cracking the whip like, get out of Egypt. He led them out, and they came with him. He coaxed them. They had been in bondage and hard labor for centuries building Pharaoh's cities. And he says, I took the yoke off of them. I could see that they were worn out, and they were tired, and they were embittered, and it was a harsh life that they had been leading, but I removed that and gave them a place in a time of rest, and it was with him. That he, he stooped down to them. He ensured every need was met. He provided good things. And as believers who've been born again by grace, we can identify with this kind of love, can't we? That we were enslaved to sin. We were oppressed by the devil. Um, and God has set us free. He's provided us good things in his word. He's given us atonement. So the sin that we have committed would be atoned, that we could be redeemed, that we could be justified. I like what Jay Vernon McGee says on this. He says, love is not the basis of salvation, but it's the motive of salvation. See, it required more than just love for us to be saved, right? Because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There was atonement required that we need to respond to. And uh, so God's been gracious to us. He was gracious to them. Hosea 11, verse 5. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refuse to repent. And the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. Gravity is an unquestioned reality that we have to deal with, right? When I was training as an apprentice and I had to work at heights, I had to wear a harness so with a lanyard that you would tie off and uh, we were taught of how the force of falling uh, goes up exponentially that if you were a 90 kilo worker and you fell 0.3 meters so you fall a foot and it's double the 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 weight 180 kilos of force are exerted and if you were to fall um, 1.2 meters it jumps to 726 kilos and that's why when you're a taller person like a kid they can fall down they're already pretty near the ground and they're light Uh, there's not that much inertia but when you're six feet tall and you you're standing six feet off the ground and you do a header well that's gonna be bad really significant Um, just so you know, a 2.6-meter fall, that's 1,633 kilos of force. So it's pretty significant, um, and that's why they don't let lanyards, the thing that you tie off on, be longer than two meters, because uh, even that would be damaging to you. So a little fall has a strong force. That's unquestioned. Well, the God who created this world and created gravity and these natural laws to, to uh, rule in it He is the one who created this law of sin and death that the soul that sins will surely die. There are consequences for sin and it's not negotiable. It is going to happen. When you kick that ball up into the sky, it's not sometimes gonna go all the way to the moon. It's going to fall because of the force of gravity and if you sin, God says, the soul that sins will die and the law that they had put on the doorposts of their houses and that they wore on their arms and on their foreheads, that condemned them. Because it had no power to save, it just showed their faults, that they had broken God's laws. And they hadn't responded to his prophets or his word. And so he's like, the sword is gonna slash. The districts would be devoured. There's all this alliteration there. You'd be consumed for your wicked counsel. Like this is the result of what you've chosen. You've made these, the, the, you've sinned in this way and this is gonna be the response. It's, you're not gonna be able to avoid that. And God lamented that the people claimed he was their God, but they didn't follow him. He said that he healed them, and he says, my people are bent on backsliding from me. Now, the word bent, in the Strong's Concordance, it's to suspend, to be uncertain, or to hang in doubt. And uh, we can be uncertain and hang in doubt at times. Um, And we might define the word as crooked, or an inclination, right? If you're bent on something, that's the way that you, you're inclined to go. And God's people, they were predictably bent to backslide or apostatize, to depart from him. Uh, and no matter how uh, bent on backsliding we are, there is hope for healing. And that's an interesting thing, to think that our backslidings require healing. Why don't you turn to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 21 through 23. Jeremiah chapter 3, starting in verse 21. It says, A voice was heard on the desolate heights, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel for they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Indeed, we do come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. God says, you've, you've, you're bent on backsliding. Return to me. And then the response of the people, like, You are the Lord our God. There's no salvation in any other place. Man's bent is to believe that he is somehow capable of saving himself, that his best efforts or intentions are worthy of forgiveness and salvation. But that's not so. God says, If you return to me, I will heal you. Whenever we turn from God and we choose sin, it's like a sheep that wanders from the fold, from the flock. The good shepherd and falls into a ditch, and there's an injury. Um, If you fall as an adult, it's a pretty serious occurrence. Like, for a lot of people, sadly, that's the beginning of a decline that can end up costing you, shortening your life, basically. Um, You can have a bruise or a gash or a graze, dislocations, fractures, Rupturing of tendons and ligaments, these things take a long time to heal. And it could just be from an innocuous stumble. You didn't see the, the curb and you kicked it, and, and now you've got a, a lifelong injury. Have you learned, brothers and sisters, that when we sin, it wounds our souls? It wounds us. It's, it causes, we, the Bible says that we pierce ourselves through with many sorrows through greed, through covetousness. Wrath and anger, it robs us of rest. Worry, we're unsettled. We are hanging in doubt and uncertain. And so we're not going in the right way. And so we're weary, we're afraid. And Satan, he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we're, we are under assault sometimes and under attack. So God says, return to me. I will heal your backslidings. I will restore your souls. You have rest in me. Like, remember, I'm the one who taught you to walk. I'm the one who's led you by the hands, who's spoken kindly to you. Respond to my voice. Don't just follow after every voice you hear, but listen to me, because my sheep know me. Let's be quick to return to God when we stray, not just when we're so wounded we can't even walk back to him, but praise the Lord, he comes to us. And I, I was reading this morning in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This is what it says. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, having salvation lowly and riding upon an ass, upon a full, uh, the colt, the full of an ass. And you say, like, for the king to come to you is an amazing thing. I mean, the king is the one who sits on a throne and sends a messenger to summon you or to arrest you to come to him. But our king, he comes to us. And he comes to us when we're in bondage. And he comes to us when we're under attack. And he comes to us when we've been imprisoned unjustly. And when people have, when we have no recourse at all, he says, I come to you. Your king comes to you. Now, if it's another king coming to me, that could be a cause for alarm. But it's my king who's coming to me. Someone who knows my name, who knows where I live, who is able to be uh, my protector and provider it's like he comes to you. Your king comes to you. Because he loves you and it's of his grace. If I, if I was in a castle that was under, that was being besieged, and the message came, your king is coming to you. I'd be like, finally, good. And then he's like, he's not coming on the wind. He's riding a donkey. And we just think about Jesus, where he rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And uh taking on human flesh, humbling himself. Let's exalt him. Hosea 11, verse eight. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. Do you hear the compassion and the love in God's voice here? Where his love stirred up sympathy for his people in his heart. Their sin was worthy of fire and brimstone. That's what happened to Adma and Zeboim. That, those were the places that were adjacent to Sodom and Gomorrah where fire and brimstone came down and destroyed every inhabitant of those cities. In Deuteronomy twenty-nine, twenty-three, it says, The whole land is brimstone, salt, and burning. It is not sown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow there, like the overthrown of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. So those are places that could not grow anything anymore. It was like no grass even grew there. Brimstone, salt, and burning. And he's like, I can't bear to make Israel like that. It's like instead of Israel being completely overturned, there was an overturning in God's heart. And his his kindled wrath, it it stirred up his compassion. And he says, I'm not going to make a full destruction. I will chasten them for their sins, but I'm going to save them. Now, the basis of Israel's hope was not in their ability to change, but in the God who does not change. Isn't that great? That their salvation did not rest on their ability to do anything or even their desire because they desired to to do the things of God. They fell woefully short. And it's good for us to remember too because often our hopes do not extend beyond um, men or our own effort or ability. Like my hope of doing what's right can be nothing more than hoping in myself, which is faulty see, God had made a covenant with Israel, and unlike a man who went back on his word, who has a lot of fine print there, God would keep his word. He says, you are my people, and I am your God. That's not changing. If I was a man, I could have disowned you long ago, but I'm not a man. I'm the holy one in your midst, the one who does not change. That's what it says in Malachi 3.6, For I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. So they deserve the wrath of God, but he says, Because of the promises I've made to you, I'm not seeking your destruction, your restoration, your redemption. God was totally unlike the lawless people in Israel. It is a fearful thing to fall into the living hands as an evildoer. But as a child of God, we can come to him knowing that he loves us, and that he'll receive us. It's a comfort and a blessing to know that God draws near to us. Hosea 11 verse 10, they shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, then his sons shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. If you lived in Hosea's day and you heard a lion roaring outside, which direction would you go? Towards the lion or away from the lion? I would probably go away from the lion personally. I think that would scatter people. Right? Like in a zoo, you know, when, it, when it's apparent that the trainer has been immobilized by a roaring lion and there, you felt kind of safe because he had the chair and the whip, but now he's on his back and uh, the lion's looking up for more. I think, I think the observers scatter at that point. But see, God, who is the good shepherd, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, And when he speaks, we come to him. And there's this trembling, right? He says, when the lion roars, people will come trembling. My people will come from the west and from the east, from uh, Assyria and Egypt, where they had gone. They had sought help there. The northern kingdom, it would be absorbed among the the nations, but the southern kingdom of Judah, after 70 years in captivity, would return to the Lord. They would live in the city again. We previously read in Hosea 7.11, Ephraim is also like a silly dove. Without sense, they call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. And we've talked about how they were quite silly to go back to the place of their bondage to try to make a deal with the Assyrians who were their enemies, hoping that from their enemies they could have help instead of going to God who had brought them out, who had delivered them from every uh, Jericho and Ai and on and on. He's the one who gave them all the victory. And he says they'd come home trembling like a dove. And a lot of prophetic passages have multiple fulfillments. This is one of them. Um, People did return in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they rebuilt the city. And in 70 AD, Israel was overthrown by the Romans in 1948. And that's a pretty big span of time. 1948, they were declared a nation once again. And Jews have come in droves from all over the world to live in their inheritance and we know that a day is coming when Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, he will set his feet down on the Mount of Olives and he will rebuild with his, him sitting on the throne. And those who hear his voice will come who survived the great tribulation. And we will come with him and rule and reign with him. And that's pretty amazing. Okay, Hosea 11, verse 12. Ephraim has encircled me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. Verse 1 of chapter 12, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind. He daily increases lies and desolation. Also, they make a covenant with the Assyrians and oil is carried to Egypt. Ephraim had not been faithful. They had been deceitful. The word used for deceitful there, is the same word that Isaac used in telling Esau that Jacob had deceitfully taken his blessing. You remember the story that Esau, he's, uh, Isaac said, hey, I want to bless you, my son. Go make some venison. Go make some savory meat, that which I love. And go hunting and bring it back so I can bless you. And he's like, okay, so he leaves. Well, Rebekah, his mother, hears that, and she preferred Jacob the, the younger son, and she says, hey, you need to get this blessing. So we're going to disguise you. I'm going to make some food, and you're going to go in to uh, your dad and get the blessing. So he was deceitful. And he says, that's how my people have been. They have worked treacherously. They are marked by unfaithfulness to me. But Judah, they were walking with God. They're their sin and level of idolatry did not hardly reach to that of the northern kingdom. But they still were not blameless. They were not without guilt. They too would be um, punished. The law of Moses was the standard. And you know, when we compare ourselves to one another and think that because there's worse people in the world, I'm actually good. Um, no, the standard remains the same. God's righteousness is a standard. Christ is the standard. I like what David wrote in Psalm 37.3. He says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. So he makes a connection between trusting God, faith in God, and doing good. That we would abide in the place where he has set out for us. That we would be feeding on his faithfulness. It says there that in Hosea that they were feeding on the wind. And he says, if you're trusting in the Lord and doing what pleases him, you will be feeding on his faithfulness. You'll be looking to him. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, he says, your words were found and I ate them. Your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. So they're to be feeding on his faithfulness. They are to feed on his word, to believe it in faith, to walk in it. God gave Israel his word, and what a a privilege and a treasure we have that God has spoken to us, that we can put his word into practice, that we can discover who he is and our identity in him, but it says that God's people, they fed on the east wind. Now, the east wind in the Bible, it doesn't often have a good connotation. Because Israel is situated on the Mediterranean, with that to the west, the east wind would blow from the desert. Uh, in Pharaoh's dream, for instance, the seven thin ears, he said they were blasted by the east wind. Um, God caused an east wind to blow locusts into Egypt. Psalm 48.7, it says that ships of Tarshish were broken up by an east wind. It was a hot, dry wind that God caused to blow upon Jonah in Jonah 4, eight. It says, when the sun arose, that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So the east wind is not a good wind. It's not like a refreshing, like, ah, this is the life kind of wind. You know, like that cool breeze that blows off the ocean. It was like, I want to die. (laughs) And he says, that's what you're feeding on. You're feeding on emptiness and it's leading to your ruin. You're pursuing something that is deadly and destructive. It says you're impoverishing yourself by giving gifts to Egypt. Instead of trusting me, you're running off to Assyria. You're thinking that you're going to find help with them. And it said they daily increase their lies and desolation. Believing lies, it, it causes us to resemble like a a spatially disoriented airline pilot. Pilots are taught to rely upon the instruments regardless of how they feel. Now, you've been in a plane where there's a bit of a, like a whoo, and you're like, wow, that was a little bit of turbulence. And you can feel, like when you're coming into Sydney, that bank to the right, right? You can feel that. Now, the the problem is, though, because of our inner ear and gravity and how this works, when you have no orientation, so there's no horizon, it's pitch black, or there's inclement weather, sometimes you can feel like you're going up, but in fact you're going down. So that's why they teach their pilots to focus on the instruments. Like, you may feel like you're going down, but hey, we need to, don't, Go by your feeling, go by your readings, trust your instruments. And uh, there's, there's this, uh, so if your plane is banking and you don't realize that you're banking, you'll have the feeling that you need to gain altitude. So you'll pull back on the stick, which causes you to actually face downward into what's called a graveyard spiral. Not a good thing. You wanna avoid the graveyard spiral. So it's like God's people Because they were not looking to God for salvation, they were just in their desperation seeking to do anything to just avert the disaster that was coming to them. They're making a deal with Egypt, they're making a deal with Assyria, they're not looking to God, and they're in this graveyard spiral pushed by the east wind. And unless they looked to God, who was telling them the truth, they were going to, they were heading for destruction. And so what a great reminder this is for us to fix our eyes on Jesus because we may not even know we're in a graveyard spiral. How many people have totally run aground in their lives who felt like everything was going well, but they didn't realize that they, in drifting from God, they were feeding on the east wind. They were heading for destruction. They did not know it. God's people did not know it. Sometimes we don't know it. Looking to Christ, he is that one fixed point. You know, the, the earth is rotating. The sun also moves in its circuit, the Bible says. So everything that is in our lives is always, it's chaotic, right? The ocean is always moving. There's these currents that are flowing. The wind is blowing. It, there's nothing fixed except Christ. Outside of this world, outside of this universe, we have God who has come, who has spoken, words that are true, words that are faithful. And we look to him, we find that rock of salvation that cannot be moved. And we can, remain, we can know what the truth is. And we can, it, regardless of how I feel, I can believe what he has said because he is a faithful God who loves me. He doesn't change. We can always have wise bearings from him. Isaiah 12 verse two. "The Lord also brings a charge against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his deeds, He will recompense him. He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us, that is, the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name, So you, by the help of your God, return, observe mercy and justice and wait on your God continually. God would also bring a charge here against Judah. And he says, according to your ways, I will punish you. They were held accountable by God for their sin, just like a parent will hold their child accountable and discipline them when required. And he says, I will repay you according to your deeds. Rebecca, like we spoke of before, she gave birth to twins, to Esau and Jacob. Esau, it says, was born hairy like a garment. And that I would like to see. I want to see how hairy we're talking. Like a garment? Okay. But while this red, hairy child is birthed, there is a hand attached to his foot because his brothers got him by the heel. So that name Jacob means heel catcher or supplanter. That's how he got his name. And, and it wasn't fun, this pregnancy that Rebecca had, because she's like, what is going on, God? There is like a war going on inside of me. And God's like, well, you have two nations in your womb, and they're fighting it out. So, one, so they've been fighting in utero. One of them's born, and they're just like, oh, come here. Like, they're, they are just at each other. And you see this happening throughout their lives. It's like, Jacob's the younger son by a few minutes, and, but he wants to be first. He, he barters the birthright away from Esau. Esau is the firstborn. He, the, the name of the family would pass through him. He would get the more, more of an inheritance. And he was hungry one day, and Jacob's like, hmm, my angle. Hey, sell me your birthright for this food. And he's like, well, what, what good's a birthright if I'm dead? So he eats it and gave away his birthright. And then he stole his blessing as well. Now, because that infuriated Esau, and they knew this, they said, you know, Jacob, he needs to leave. He needs to go away until his brother settles down. So go to Laban, go to my Rebecca's, go to Rebecca's family, and uh, he, he shows up and he marries, well, he makes a deal to work seven years to have Rachel as his wife. Well, Laban turns out to be quite a trickster like Jacob, and he has him marry Leah instead. So he works another seven years. And over the course of 20 years, he works for him. And he just changes his wages again and again. And so um, he says, what should I give you? And Jacob, we just read this recently. Jacob pulls a fast one now. He says, you know, uh, just, uh, just give me the, the flocks and the herds that are streaked and speckled and spotted. And that'll be my wages. And... Uh, Laban's like, sounds great. But what Jacob did is when the stronger ones came to conceive, he put some different rods in the troughs and uh, poplar, almond, and chestnut, and it caused them to give birth to speckled, spotted, and streaked. And then God gives him this vision in uh, Genesis 31 where he says, you know, I have seen how you've been abused here and I have blessed you. So it's not your savvy. It's because I'm looking out for you. Now, Hosea twelve three it says, in Jacob's strength, he struggled with God. His own personal walk with God began during that trip to go to Laban's house where he has a dream. He's using a rock as a pillow and he has this vision of a ladder with angels going up and down and then God speaks to him. And God says, I am gonna be with you I'm gonna bring you back to this land. I'm gonna make you fruitful. And then in Genesis 28, 15, he says, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And Jacob wakes up, he's amazed. He's like, whoa, God is here and I had no idea. So he sets up the stone, he pours oil on it and he makes a promise to God. He says, if you will feed me, and bring me back here as you've said. I will serve you. You will be my God. I will give a tenth to you. So he just makes a promise with God. And after 20 years, um, he's working with Laban and God spoke to him again in Genesis thirty-three thirteen. 13. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land and return to the land of your family. So God speaks to him again. He leaves Laban. Now, on the trip back to go home, according to God's word, he hears that Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men. And he is terrified because he's like, okay, I've got two wives and some kid, 12 kids, and my brother has an army of 400 men. And who knows if he's going to attack us. He would have every reason to. So he separates the family into two parties, thinking if he attacks one, at least two. Half of them will escape. He puts his favored ones towards the back. He puts the less favored ones up front. It's kind of sad, but it's <laughs> what he did. And then and then he says, well, and if I sweeten the deal and I send some droves of animals by the hands of my servants to just say, oh, here's a gift, here's a gift, here's a gift. I don't know, there's like heaps of animals he sends. And uh, maybe it'll soften his rage. So And he's afraid to death. They cross over the river and it says that night in Genesis 32. Why don't you turn there? Genesis 32, verse 24. We'll read about this wrestling match that happened. Genesis 32, starting in verse 24. It says, Then Jacob was left alone and a man capital M, wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. It's night. Jacob is terrified. His brother is coming and he has this epic bout wrestling match with this man until morning. Now, Jacob was completely overmatched in this wrestle. The man just touched him and his hip went out of joint. Now, having a Hip out of joint is a very significant injury. That doesn't usually even happen in sport. That that usually is in like a very heavy fall or from a severe car accident. It's the kind of injury that you don't walk off. You get carted off. Pretty significant injury. All of Jacob's life, he had resorted on his own schemes, on his own strength, on his ability to... If he couldn't cheat his way or steal his way, he would fight his way to get it. And now he was beaten and he was hurting. So he's wrestling with this guy all night. The guy just touches him. His hip is out of joint. Now, Hosea tells us something that Moses doesn't tell us. It says, yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. It wasn't like Jacob pinned the angel of the Lord down and said, you know, say mercy, and he's like, okay, let me go, I'm, I'm too weak for you, no, it wasn't because he was a great wrestler, he, he did not submit God, he didn't force God to tap out, because he was just so persistent, no, he was hurting, he was crying, he was holding on with his last breath, I mean, he, he was done, and he doesn't demand, he was broken, and he wept to be blessed as he clung to life, life with a capital L. He clung to him, and he did not prevail because he was stronger or a better wrestler, but because he finally surrendered to God. That's how he prevailed. He prevailed because he surrendered. And because he surrendered, God would be held by him. Because God doesn't, I mean, what's a man's grip compared to God? He can just go, Hip out of joint. Whoa. The angel whose name was wonderful, more than man or angel, he said to Jacob, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. That name Israel has a a breadth of meaning. Uh, it, It can mean God contends or prince who prevails with God or even he will rule as God. We think that victory comes when you fight to the end and you keep fighting. Like you fight longer and better than the other, you win. Right? In sport, if you play better, if you show more desire, you can just say, hey, they wanted it more than us. But it's not about wanting it. It's about surrendering to prevail, surrendering before God. Now, in Jacob, it says he walked with a limp from that day forward. And as he returns to Bethel, which means house of God, he was a changed man because when he set up an altar there, he called it El Bethel, meaning God of Bethel. So it wasn't about the house of God, it was about the God of the house. Hosea 12, five and six, it says, he found him in Bethel and there he spoke to us. That is the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. So you, by the help of your God, return Observe mercy and justice and wait on your God continually. Israel met the triune God in Bethel. And the exhortation of Hosea is, with the help of God, return to God. See, we need his help, don't we? Jacob needed that pain. He needed to be shown. like He's like, you can't beat me. And he's trying to beat him. He's like, you really can't beat me. (laughs) Now, of course, he didn't say that, but um, it says, with the help of God. We need the help of God. Verse 6 So you, by the help of your God, return. He needed some pain, it appears, to return. Now, the children of Israel, they'd been trying in vain to fight their own battles, to prevail against their enemies, just to keep fighting. And Jacob's night of wrestling, it was. The culmination of a lifetime of wrestling with God, which ended in his surrender before God. And God changed his name and his heart was changed. That's the help he needed. And God calls us to return to him, not triumphant, um, but as broken, desperate, and helpless as those who realize we need him. Without him, we can do nothing as we cling to him with our last ounce of strength, it's not because our grip is good. It's because he wants to be held by us. He wants us to be found by him. He's the one who has loved us. He's saying, I've taken you by the hands and I've taught you how to walk. I've stooped down. I I am the king that comes to you. I've come to you. He's the one who's healed us. He's the one who's made us strong. And we can use our strength to act independently of him and go our own way. But he bids us, come back to me, you who are bent on backsliding. I I will heal you. I'll restore you. I'll speak peaceably with you. We will not prevail with God until we surrender to him. That is the place of prevailing. That is the place of enduring. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us this example in your scripture and this reminder that you are God. You are the Lord of all. That just the touch of your finger can radically change our lives forever. And how you changed Jacob with that wrestle and how he surrendered to you. Lord, I pray we would all be as he was that night. Lord, that we would come to the end of fighting and trying to scheme our way out of trouble, trying to placate enemies, uh, living motivated by fear and doubt. Father, I pray that you would be our confidence. You would be our hope. And as you speak, we would come to you. We would trust you. We would obey you. We would do the things that please you. And we would not be bent on backsliding anymore but we would be like those sheep of your pasture that hear your voice and come to you. The sheep that we read about in Psalm 23 that are made to lay down in green pastures, being led beside still waters with souls restored. Thank you for your promise, Lord. Thank you for the hope that we have in you, that you are a fixed point, that uh, we find our bearings and that you have given us salvation by your grace. Father, I pray that you would just um, speak these truths into our hearts, that we'd remember them and live according to them, that we'd rejoice because our King comes to us. In Jesus' name, amen.